This episode of Youth Ministry Booster is brought to you by Grow Curriculum and Strategy. Grow provides everything you need to teach and disciple your students, train and celebrate your leaders, and partner effectively with parents. Buy from youthministrybooster.com slash grow and get a year of Youth Ministry Booster so that you can partner, support, and grow as a youth minister as you grow your youth ministry. Get all of Grow and all of Youth Ministry Booster for a year for the price of Grow at youthministrybooster.com slash grow. of the Youth Ministry Booster Podcast, we have a repeat guest, the one, the only, Dr. Andrew Root. He's back. He's got a new book. He has the completion of the book he talked about the last time he was on the show and a brand new entry into a series that is going to make some good things happen in your life. He is opening up some new doors and metaphors for what it means to pastor in the secular age. So if you haven't checked out the yellow book, uh, Faith Formation in the Secular Age, super good. Links below. But we're going to have a little dive in here, a preview session of the new book coming out later in June, and then the invitation for you and your senior pastor or executive leader to have a live chat with Andy June 12th at 2 o'clock Central Time. That's right. Andy's going to hang out with us live, talk about the book, talk about what it means to pastor in 2019 and beyond, and whatever this mode or model of a secular age looks like. It's super exciting. We love hanging out with our good buddy Andy, and we do not want you to miss it. It's a free event for anybody that would love to learn more about what it means to pastor in the now and the beyond, and how the imagery of who the pastor is and the role the pastor serves has changed. So you're going to want to check that out. There is links in the show notes below. It is free, free, free to anybody that wants to check it out, but bring your senior leader with you. Bring your senior pastor, bring your executive leader, your senior team. It's June 12th. It's a Wednesday afternoon at two o'clock. So take your lunch late, sit around the computer, huddle, talk to Dr. Root, ask your questions and get ready for his brand new book entry by checking out this a little bit of a quick dive into a summary of what it's going to look like, address some of the big questions of what it means to pastor or youth pastor in the secular age. Check it out for now, and I'll catch you on the flip at the end. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to another interview episode of the Mystery Booster Podcast. We're really excited about today. One of our favorite people is back. It's summer in 2019, and it's the return tour for the one, the only Dr. Andrew Root, all the way up from Luther Seminary in Minnesota. Andy, we are so glad to have you back on the podcast today because you, a shock of all shocks, have a new book for us today <laughs> that we're super excited to talk about. Uh, yeah, it's starting to seem like I have like OCD or something like that. You know what I mean? Like I just, uh, (laughs) I just feel like of all my academic friends, uh, the mileage varies on their output or their throughput of books. And so you either, uh, have unlocked a recipe in yourself and practice to just churn the pages, uh, or you're just, you're just wired to write, man. Like I just feel like every four months that we got something new from Andy Root and I love it. I can't get enough of it. <laughs> not, not quite four months, man. Let's, uh, yeah. But, uh, I'll just say it's a couple books a year. If you work it out, like it's, uh, it's good. It's good. You know, some folks are hope to write a book in life. You're hoping to finish a book by the end of next month. I love it. So, uh, but That's you're back, with- you back, man. Thanks oh, for man. having me back. Well, so so this we're picking up. This isn't a little nice. We're doing a little, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, fellowship into two towers. So the last time we talked to you, you were finishing up 
the first of what may be more or less of a series and kind of doing some theological exploration of Charles Taylor. Uh, So for our Theo nerd friends or our philosophy nerd friends at home, Charles Taylor, uh, as Andy Andy Root uh, so aptly put it, Charles Taylor wrote a book, The Secular Age, that people say is the book that people will read in the 22nd century. First book from the 21st century that people read in the 22nd century. Is that how we're doing it? That's what I say. I think he owes me some money for saying Uh, that. It's a nice little pick. That, that's a pretty early pick, right? Because he was right. in like, uh, 2006? Seven. Yeah. Seven, yeah, yeah, yeah. Seven is when uh, A Secular Age came out. And Which he's is a, a huge, old guy. He's 87 years old. So, he's you still know, alive, yep. living philosopher, and it's a huge book. And so for a lot of folks maybe aware of its existence, maybe had dabbled with it, but you are full into exploring it. Um, letting it be kind of a, a backbone for some of the works that you're doing. And she, you wrote a book, uh, the yellow book, as we were joking earlier, it's kind of aimed at the youth pastor or at least those that work with young people. Uh, but now what we're dubbing the blue book, it's coming out end of June, uh, 2019 is more for the pastor. What, what is, uh, what is, yeah, uh, I think, I think that's fair. Line it up for us a little bit. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, I think the, the, the first book, the yellow book definitely has kind of a, a youth worker, youth pastor feel, though I think as, as people read it, they'll discover pretty quickly it's, it's not really a, a youth ministry book, though I think it's, I mean, I think part of my mission in the world is to take some pretty deep theological ideas and put them in the universe of youth ministry and try okay. to kind of continue to um, kind of give nobility to what, what people do in youth ministry as a, as a deep theological task. So thank you for that. that, No problem. (laughs) Now you can send me some money. Um, (laughs) Charles Taylor first, you second. Uh, So that's what this is all about. That's it. That's Uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So the first, so it's really an issue of faith formation. So I think that does land in the lap. The first book is, and that really does land in the lap of, of youth worker people. And this second one, I think, does too, though, like you're saying, it feels more directly connected probably to senior pastor, lead pastor, solo pastor, uh, because it's really about pastoral identity. Okay. Uh, and not just like clerical, you were, you were ordained pastoral identity, but pastoral identity really broadly. I mean, but it does really try to sketch a history. Uh, the first book, I think, which you're really right, does connect more with youth workers because the first book was kind of sketch a history of authenticity. Yeah. Of authenticity and how youthfulness played a piece in that, which uh, again just drops right in the lap of youth workers. And this the second one tries to sketch a history of just what makes being a pastor so darn hard. Why okay. is it so hard? Okay. Um, so I kind of start I start with multiple stories, but one of the stories I start with is being at a speaking engagement at a denominational training period and having a pastor come up to me and, and basically say, I mean, he just looked me in the eyes and he had this moment of real honesty and vulnerability. And he said, listen, I have no idea what I'm doing. He said, I've been at this for 15 years mm. um, and I have no clue what I'm doing. And it was this really weird look. I read about it in a book like this, that he kind of had this look of someone who's like lost in the house they grew up in. Yeah. Um, because then he would like kind of, he would snap back into confidence. He goes, Oh, actually I know exactly what I'm doing and I'm pretty good at it. Like I run a good meeting. I write a good sermon. I have a tech study I go to, I, I, you know, I'm a good, I'm a good pastor, but then he would kind of snap back into not knowing what he's doing in the sense of like, when it comes to really passing on faith to my people, when it comes really to helping my people encounter the living presence of God and how to see God's living presence in their life, I'm not so sure I know what I'm doing. So the through line of these books really is this kind of sense of 
trying to help people imagine, or I guess what Taylor challenges us to do is philosophy, is interpretive kind of cultural philosophy, is just the difficulty for people to imagine a living God in their lives. Okay. And when that becomes difficult to imagine a living God in the lives of 15-year-olds, but now let's go to 35-year-olds or their parents, 45-year-olds, that's a real challenge to what we're doing kind of in, in pastoral ministry. So that, that, so there, you can see there's a connection, but there's a, there's a distinction too in these two books. Well, let's set that up a little more because I think that's one of the things for our listeners. You're, you're, na- you're nailing a lot of the emotions they felt. And then maybe let's kind of talk through the ways in which the tailor might be helpful. Because uh, I think what you're talking about is like, where is my place in the world uh, is, is incredibly sensitive for anybody that's serving on church staff. I, mean, I, think, I think the reports that have come out recently have pointed towards a more and more bivocational future for the pastor. Uh, and so the, the idea that this would be my, my sole enterprise and sole uh, vocation for, for the ways in which it you know, supplies income for my family is shifting, uh, but also at the rate in which people are serving uh, in a very uh, vocational way, maybe responds to a call um, of God in their life, but maybe not quite inside the church because they don't always feel like they fit inside of some of the traditional roles in the church. Uh, so I think you're naming a lot of those things people are feeling. Maybe set up for a little bit like why you think, because there's a lot of different folks to tap into. Maybe Taylor feels like, like the most unexplored because it is fresh, but like why for you are you kind of settling in? Like what about some of the Charles Taylor's writings appeals to you in a way that helps kind of like open up some of these questions is, is, it, is it the way in which he kind of like like names the questions or kind of appropriates a process to get to an answer yeah i mean i think as crazy as it sounds it's the it's the narrative sense of it, it okay. you're really right when you said like this is a huge book it's an intimidating book like you know it's it's a 740 page you know tome uh that will if you drop it on your you know your four-year-old's break foot, a toe exactly, <laughs> yeah. it'll break a toe really quickly i mean it's a huge it's a huge intimidating intimidating book but you know as i talked about the yellow book on podcasts and stuff i'd always say you know what's what's really intimidating about the big book is he's only trying to answer one question mm. and the one question is um looking at just kind of the Western world, the world we kind of inherit, why was it in 1500, if you go back, you know, a relatively short time, 500 years, was it really impossible to find anyone who didn't believe in God? Mm-hmm. And then in the short 500 years later, what's happened in the West that it's pretty much the reverse, especially if you live on the coast, maybe not in the middle of the country like us, but um, for sure on the coast, but you can find it in Minneapolis, you can find it in Oklahoma City, that it's easier for people not to believe in God yeah. than to believe in God. Yeah. So that's what's really, I think, quite fascinating about the work. And so, you know, really what's been central to all of my work, whether it's been youth ministry focused or just more broadly ministry focused is to really try to make this claim for people that at the heart of what ministry is, is encounter with the living presence of God. Mm. And so your practices, the way you think about even yourself and your own person in ministry has to have some kind of deep connection i would want to say deep connection if if we just at least just a surface connection with how you think god acts and moves in the world how Mm -hmm. you you think the people you do ministry with and for um encounters the presence of god and i think what's so helpful about taylor is he doesn't he doesn't solve any of our problems but he helps us really perceive what the issue is okay and um and I guess my take has been, especially in the first book, my take was really that the way we're trying to do faith formation doesn't actually take into consideration what is at stake here. Okay. Um, okay. And that we, 
that we misdiagnose what's going on and we end up spinning our wheels. And we're, I we're think playing that's, low stakes ball in a high stakes arena kind of thing. Is it just is that is that we yeah kind of we misappropriated how yeah. big the pot is if we're doing the if we're doing the poker terms. Yeah, we misappropriated how how big the pot is. I think we've actually it's possible that we've misappropriated what game we're playing. Even you know that okay. uh, we're not okay. playing poker at all. We're playing we're playing. Uh, I don't know. You know, you see the limit of my my gambling mind. We're playing no, craps. Oh, so we're but, playing but, but I think for a lot of people, like it's the old chess and checkers, right? Like you know, he's playing chess, yeah, yeah. playing checkers as a one upsmanship. But maybe maybe even more, especially in youth ministry, we've all been playing you know, checkers in a chess world. I mean, is that, is that too simplistic to say? Or is- no, that's, I think that's exactly it. I mean, it, it, that's the case I want to, I want to pick up in the first book is that yes, that we've been playing checkers and this is really a chess world. And that's oh. not to, again, no one should belittle those who are playing checkers. Like, you know, uh, yeah. it, it's, it's not a bad thing to play checkers and checkers aren't fundamentally bad, but uh, the game is more complicated, I guess, okay. or our environment is more complicated. And it's not just that young people, I guess what I was pushing in that first book is it's not just that people aren't going to church or people are disinterested, that there's a whole kind of cultural imagination that makes it really hard for people to perceive. And they just kind of even de facto live out of a sense of a living God in their lives. So I guess where I pick up in the second book is if that is true, then what does that do to the identity of of the pastor, of the minister broadly. Of the person um, that's still left at the church house with the keys. <laughs> ex- I mean, exactly. Yeah. And is still getting a continually uh, decreasing paycheck or something. Like, right, you know what I mean? Right, or, right. or has, or has your 401k in a denomination that's, that's, that's hemorrhaging people right. and resources and things like that, you know? So what, what does it actually mean? Because I think that becomes part of the problem is that, in the midst of our decline and loss, we've misinterpreted what the decline and loss is about. Mm-hmm. And then even our views of what it would mean to be a good pastor gets overtaken by trying to upend the gravitational pull of loss. And we yeah. just start doing something wacky to our identity. Um, so really in the first half of the book, and I just, I try to tell this, this, this is a problem with making Charles Taylor, your dialogue partners. He writes these big histories then, you know what I mean? Like yeah. 500 years of history and yeah. he never thinks anything is what he calls like a home run or a direct line. Like, you know okay. what I mean? Like you, you hear this in politics all the time. Like, well, once we lost prayer in school, everything right, went, right, right. you know, this is or clearly the A once, to the B or whatever. Yeah. Yes. Clear A to the B. And his point is it never works like that. Okay. that there's always multiple zigzags. Like okay. you, you get this and then something like it, this, it could have meant this, but then this happened. So it means he's got to write this like really complicated 700 page history. <laughs> now, which is why you end up with almost, a book that's the size of like a fantasy tome, right? Like this is why it's like a Robert Jordan, George R. No, R. Martin with book. no dragons, but with right, with no, no dragons. <laughs> But there's no dragons. Secular age with no dragons. That's it. Right. Yeah, it it's, right. a, it's a dance with the secular. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, you still have, a feast for crows, though. That's what's confusing. Yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. Um, so, so yeah, you get this long book and you get a hard book, but once you can decipher the way he's telling the story, it's an incredibly fascinating book. But once you get the code, this is, you know, my confession to all your listeners. Once you get the code, then you have this deep, deep temptation as a writer and as a thinker to tell a story like Taylor. So, okay. um, you know, so this book ends up being a little bit too long. It's almost 300 pages, which I apologize for. But then on the first half of the book, I feel like I have to tell this story. And so yeah. I picking up from this pastor who told me like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, 
try to put that assertion in the mouth of kind of historically pastors. Like there's just no way in the world that someone like Thomas Beckett or uh, Augustine or Jonathan Edwards would have ever, ever even had the thought that I have no idea what I'm doing. Or in other words, like I am, I am in a vacuum of meaning. Like there's no meaning to my vocation. What does this actually mean? These people would have never thought that they would have all sorts of other problems. I mean, they had 99 problems, you know, but what, but they had 99 problems. Let's see if I can do this. They had 99 problems, but the loss of transcendence was not one. One, right, right. I mean, think about historically, like the thing, the way in which like, you know, things are esteemed of like artisans, politicians, bankers, doctor, doctors, merchant, clergy. Like, like there almost is this like, even though there's like a caste system of like historical employment, like clergy always made it like above middle class. Right. There was always like a certain way of thinking of like, well, you know, they have a role even in, you know, some of the most like dark age time. Like this seems like, you know, throughout history, like ever since the, you know, Constantinian (laughs) establishment of whatever, there was always a place for the clergy to serve uh, in the establishment. But I guess the pressing thing from, from what you're sharing about Taylor is that like, the rot has kind of felt from the inside out. Is that, is that the thing that I'm kind of like, I mean, you're talking about for the, that this isn't like, this isn't like a cultural attack of like the things outside have caused us to drift. But like what you're narrating is that like pastors inside their own churches are feeling like a drift. Yeah. I mean, I think it's both a little bit of an outside current, but definitely an inside current. I mean, that's one of the interesting things that Taylor wants to say is that the secular age never exists outside of you because he's okay. not really even trying to like object he is trying to objectively name it but he also is one of the things he's trying to say is i want to tell you a story of what it feels like to live in a secular age mm. not just to kind of rationalize it but what it actually feels like and so no one gets to escape the kind of secular age he's describing i mean even if you were someone who went to church every day or went to mass you know like once or twice a day you still would inherit these institutions, this uh, political system, these other things that would impose upon you a certain frame of living, which you would call the imminent frame where you like, if if you were to, if we were to bounce back, say into Paris in the 13th century, the whole framing order of our life would be a supernatural one. And um, the way we would walk, the way we would talk, the way we would dress would all point to this supernatural order of a God who encounters us, of a God who demands we pray, of a God who demands we go to mass. Um, the, the best example I have for this that I use all over the place, um, and I can use at your church too, if you invite me to your church. Um, there you go. That was an ugly plug. Um, Links in the show notes below. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but the, the example of this is, of course, it's, this is coming right back in next week, right? Like middle next week, The Handmaid's Tale. Like The Handmaid's yeah. Tale is a kind of ancient regime kind of sense where the way you talk, the way you dress, um, all points to this larger order of a divine reality that's directing us. Mm. And we don't have that anymore. We've lost that. We inherit in what Taylor calls not a supernatural kind of framework, but we inherit an imminent framework. So we live inside of an imminent frame. So that becomes new challenges for the pastor. And I think well, the story I'm trying to tell is that the pastor both had this movement towards imminence thrust upon him or her, but also he or she also participated in bringing it about too. So mm. it's always a kind of both 
and kind of okay. reality. Um, okay. So, so that's kind of where I'm going with, with the whole thing. But it, it, so I try to tell the story that moves from, well, I actually start with Thomas Beckett and then go backwards. So it's a little bit historically out of order, but go Beckett, Augustine to Jonathan Edwards, each with a chapter, but then to go to this guy that uh, probably fewer people know, um, named Henry Ward Beecher, who was kind of around the time of Abraham Lincoln. Okay. And then, and then Beecher goes, this guy, classic liberal, uh, uh, pastor named uh, harry fosdick and yeah. these people all played their part and then finally to rick warren okay um, so it goes all the way to rick warren to show how the secular age kind of played in there so it's it's a book trying to do a lot of heavy lifting here but what i promise you is there's a, just a ton of stories in it like stories okay. of historical figures but also stories of more contemporary people trying to figure out you know how what does it mean to be a pastor and do ministry in an age where well the subtitle of the book is how do you ministry uh, what is it? Um, doing ministry to people who no longer need God or something like that. So, um, so, so what, are, what are some of those zigzags? Then that's a lot of history to chase down, uh, and some really interesting kind of examples to pick. I mean, I, I think the the you know anytime you can draw um, a zigzag line from Augustine to Rick Warren, you have me intrigued. Uh, yeah. And so, just, well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm. No, it's good. Like, well, but what? Well, what are some of the things that you're tracing through that get us into? Uh, a very modern figure uh, like Warren um, that, you know, like, mm-hmm. again, if it's, if it's here to there to here to there, it's not a direct line. Uh, what, what are some of the, the ripples and the zigs and the zags uh, that you're kind of tracing and teasing through um, to help kind of frame um, this, this new age that we live in? Yeah. So to, to, to be as brief as I can and, and uh, yeah, you can, you can stop me when, when this becomes too much. Oh, we're here um, for the goods, man. Bring it all. <laughs> <laughs> or you can push me to say, because I may go too fast here. But I mean, I really try to tell the story through through um, Thomas Beckett, who if people don't know who Thomas Beckett is, you should definitely um, Google or, you know, Wikipedia him. He's a fascinating figure story. Figure worth knowing. Figure worth knowing. Um, was became the bishop, the Bishop of Canterbury, and is known for uh, refusing Henry II. Um, he, he was like Henry II's man, and then Henry II put him as the archbishop, and he had kind of a transformation, and he decided that it was his job. Uh, Henry II put him uh, put him as the archbishop so he would get all these priests off his back, and they you know he'd be able to do what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And then Beckett like has this moment basically as he's ordained as the archbishop, where he is transformed and he becomes the defender of these pastors, and of course it leads to this gruesome, gruesome moment in church history where. Henry II in his, in his uh, frustration says, you know, who's going to take care of this bishop for me? You kind of think Game mm-hmm. of Thrones here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And about, you know, a half dozen knights or whatever, go find uh, Beckett right before Vespers at uh, uh, the cathedral. And, uh, well, they basically slice his head open and kill him on, the, on that floor. But what the story I'm trying to tell is not the gruesome kind of uh, um, Quentin Tarantino pieces of that, but, the, uh, but where I'm trying to go with it is for a couple hundred years after this Beckett was venerated and people would carry around, well, people would go on pilgrimage to, to go to where he was killed to mm-hmm. go to his tomb. But people would even carry around uh, little uh, necklaces with uh, files of his blood in it. Of course, mm-hmm. was it really his blood, but there was this whole sense of a, of a deeply enchanted world where Beckett kind of represented the pastor as almost Buffy, the vampire slayer. I mean, they okay. you you held the keys 
into eternity, really. I mean, you, the, 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 the fact of eternity spilling into time, um, the sacredness of time and you being as the, as the pastor, the manager of sacred time gave an incredible amount of identity to you. You know, even if you were uh, a little uh, a village priest and you couldn't read, you still had things themselves were charged with holiness. You know, so if you your cloak and your the cross you wore around your neck could chase demons away. You know, and we forget all these things. Like the church bells were not just to signal to people, "Hey, it's noon," or "Hey, it's time to come to mass." Church bells rang because they chased demons literally away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, this is a time before fire brigades this is a time before medicine and the pastor, if you want to call it the pastor, the priest had all this divine weight to do these things. So there's just no way any priest in Thomas Beckett's age could have a kind of malaise of imminence. Like this pastor I had at this conference was like, what am I doing? Like mm-hmm. you were Buffy the vampire slayer, man. Like you were, you were fighting demons. Yeah. You held divine things. So I tell that story, but then we go to Augustine and the big thing about Augustine is just the sense that uh, there's this inwardness that's really important. Um, that, you know, Augustine, there's just no modern, modern world without Augustine is mm-hmm. Augustine thinks the stage where the divine and human actually encounter each other is internal. It's in your mm-hmm. heart. It's in, it's in this kind of internal place. So I tell that story, but show how that's changed in modernity. And we get what Taylor calls a buffered self where okay. we, t- we like these, these evil forces, these evil spirits can't get inside of us anymore that we have like psychically psychologically constituted senses of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even if you've had too much to drink the night before, or you wake up super crabby at a retreat, you, ne- you never think to yourself, even if you're on a, like a church retreat, you very rarely, you're, you're, you're in a weird spot. If you wake up and think, Oh, I'm so mad. There must be a demon here. Okay. Like, or there must be some evil that's gotten to my spirit. Yeah. You tend not to think that. You tend to think, I need some coffee. Right. Like, I'm tired. I need some coffee. Hot shower will fix it. Yeah. Hot yeah. shower will fix it, which, you know, and I think about this with my son who's 14 who has some bad days where he gets frustrated with us or stressed out with school. And I almost never think, like, oh no, there's a demon here. I almost mm-hmm. always think he's hungry. He's tired. He's, he's hangry, you know, mm-hmm. um, he needs yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, all that stuff plays in, which shows that there's that we've kind of put as modern people, a buffer between the self and the kind of essence of, of the self's being. So it's not you who say is depressed. It's, um, it's the, it's the psychological constitution of, of, of your mind, or it's a chemical imbalance in, in your mind. And so those are all real huge gains, I think, for us. But mm. they also come with a buffer where, so for instance, with that buffer, you used to preach a sermon, say in 1500, and there was a direct route from what you said to the very soul of the person who heard it. Mm. That would just be a direct into their soul. Now, everyone who hears your sermon, there's a buffer. And they buffer that and they may decide that it does impact them and they take it in and, and they do something with it and form its identity. But the sense that that word immediately hits the very essence of their soul and could even determine it eternally where it's going, people just don't necessarily function out of that. So those are the first two moves, but okay. there's a lot, okay. a, a lot, a long way to go, but you can see how these two people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A lot like, Oh, and, but then you get, you know, then the reformation happens, of course. And then you end up in the, in the colonies here with, um, Jonathan Edwards. And, 
What's fascinating about Edwards is exactly what you had just said earlier is that during colonial America, I mean, this is before the revolution um, when Edwards is preaching and bringing forth revivals and things. And the most educated people in all the colonies were pastors. Mm -hmm. There was, you know, Yale, Harvard, um, the university of New Jersey, or uh, that becomes uh, Princeton university. Those places are all created for the education of clergy pretty much period. Right. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, it is the, the lofty position of education, right? Because uh, it wasn't too long before that, that, you know, the, you know, the church was the repository. We talked about this before a couple of years ago, the church was the repository of, of all learning, right? That theology was queen of the sciences, like literally queen of the sciences as we understood science <laughs> and determ- right. determining, you know, star, sun, moon, and Jesus. And so, yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, yeah. and that's starting to change in Edward's time, like Newton is writing and he's into that kind of stuff. But still, for the most part, especially in the colonies, you know, like it's, there's no other reason to learn to really read and write if you're not going to be preaching, preaching and, and right. reading the scriptures, you know, I mean, that, I mean, that's an overstatement, but not by that much. And so Edwards is, is really important and he's really important civically. But what happens after the Protestant Reformation is that uh, there's a whole transition that it's not really what you do that matters. It's how you do it. Okay. Um, so this this kind of whole movement um, of, um, it, 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 for instance, we we you know at least in the Lutheran world we'll still talk a lot about the priesthood of all believers. You know, the, a big tenet of Protestantism that you don't necessarily need a priest to be your um, gateway anymore. You don't need a Thomas Beckett necessarily. And now there's this kind of affirmation of ordinary life where you live your faith out in the world. Yeah. So one of the things that Taylor says that's really fascinating, I think. And one of the things that makes Taylor so fascinating is he says to get this kind of to get to this kind of secular age that we have where God is an option, you can only get to that. Now you have to listen to this; is it's it's so counterintuitive. You can only get to a world where God is an option if you are coming out of a world where God was absolutely a must. So it's only a world, the world of unbelief that we inherit now, you can only get there because you once had a world where people were super, 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 super concerned that you believed and lived that out in every part of your life. Mm. So he's trying to say what Protestantism does is it raises the bar for everyone. And it says, now you, it's not just you go to mass and the priest does this stuff for you and you take the Eucharist and then you're fine. Now, every part of your life, every day, you yourself as an individual need to live out, as, you need to live your life as a priest. So this is what becomes the job of the pastor in colonial America, Jonathan Edwards. It's his job to preach to his congregation and to prod them and to lead them and to motivate them to live every second of their lives for the gospel. And so he's the most educated person. Jonathan Edwards reads and prays 13 hours a day. So he's got this lofty vocation. He's one of the most, you know, any New England pastor at this time is one of the most important civic people. But the whole Puritan society is dependent on the pastor preaching the word so the people continue to reenact their lives as Mm. committed, essentially as committed priests with with a lowercase p. Yeah. Um, so, which Taylor's seems so very different than yeah, anything we could understand or live into now, right? Like, mm-hmm. like I mean, like everything about the role of the pastor now is the option trying to move in front of you know the multitude of options, and the word of the preacher wasn't like assumed and then reenacted, but it was like maybe it would be activated because somebody heard it while they were on the elliptical at the gym on a podcast 
or you know they happen to you know catch the live stream on a on a weekend service or whatever like like so like keep keep walking us a little bit more down that street because I'm, I'm really i want to hear where you go when like because okay. there's nothing there's nothing more lofty than like that i mean i mean I think again, it's the zigs and the zag of Taylor. Like, uh, you know, pastors, like there's a real concern that pastors barely pray 30 minutes a day. And then, you know, there's yeah. gotta be some kind of relationship that, you know, Edwards only prayed and studied for 13 hours a day and would probably have much less concern for, you know, the infrastructure right. and organizational management of his church as, as it relates to right. ways in which he's just distributing sermons and preaching and deploying. And like, and right. yet at the same time, like, as more gets put on the pastor, there's less time for the thing that was the most central thing, not so long removed. And so what is that move to get us from that, like yeah. modernity into post-modernity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it becomes the next step in many ways. Um, so, I mean, uh, Edwards, the, the other backstory to Edwards, just to, just to say kind of parenthetically, is just that um, he still gets fired. So if you're in your church, you ever <laughs> have someone that's right. That's right. We talked about this over breakfast. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you can you can at least take great great uh, great faith in that you are in company with Jonathan Edwards. So yeah, thirteen hours right, a day praying, still fired, still fired, still gets gets fired, and you'll have to read the book to hear why. But let me just give you a little teaser. Oh, that's the good. guy who ends up upending him is a guy who I share a name with to my shock reading okay. this stuff. Um, it's a like a basically like a young. 22 year old butthead who's okay. uh, named Timothy Roots, uh, same spelling of the last name. So I don't know if he's a relative, but when you read what he does and the stupid things he does, it sounds like it could fit. Uh, so, so what you have next that happens that starts to change this is you move to this guy um, named Henry Ward Beecher. And Henry Ward Beecher is a, a couple generations after Edwards. Um, so, you know, the colonies are in place. We're, we're moving closer to the 19th century here. Uh, Abraham, we're into the 19th century, I guess. Abraham Lincoln is going to be, um, become uh, president towards the end of his life. But uh, he is a child of the same kind of Puritanism. And remember, Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon he ever preached is um, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, God right? So you can see what the preacher is doing is like, you need to act for God. You need to raise your children in this way, or mm. the devil that's in the woods will get you. Come and, it's, yeah. and it's bigger than just even your soul. The whole project of our society, of, of this new Israel in America, if you don't act faithfully, then we cannot enact this. So there is a more public part of this. Well, Beecher is the son of Layman Beecher, who's like a Jonathan Edwards, you know, 2.0 in some sense. But he gets completely, he basically gets completely depressed by this very harsh Calvinist theology. And he has kind of an awakening. He's really funny, actually. And he has this uh, awakening in his young adulthood where he realizes that God is really love. And so he starts preaching this gospel of love, but he starts to completely change the pastoral identity. Because unlike Edwards, who would spend 13 hours a day studying, reading, reading Newton, thinking about physics, um, thinking about inoculations and like how early inoculations happening, which again, spoiler alert, he basically kills himself, giving himself a measles inoculation, Edwards, that is, and then dies. You still go to his, his, uh, his uh, grave in, at, in Princeton. He's, it's, it's right there. But, um, but, at, but the, the identity completely changes. First of all, Beecher realizes that he can get people more engaged in church by making his sermons funny. 
And he really is in many sense, the first stand-up comedian that ever existed. Okay. So there is a kind of connection, like the pastor is the creator of stand-up comedy and it was yeah, Henry yeah. Ward Beecher. Okay. And so people would die laughing and it was, and it's even hard to read his sermons because the time it was all in the timing. So you don't read them and think this is funny, but I guess that you just, we have all these, because this is new newspapers were becoming huge at this yeah, time. And, yeah. and, and Henry Ward Beecher was like the first celebrity in America. So first stand-up comic, first celebrity, Henry Ward Beecher to okay. such an extent that before, before Abraham Lincoln even becomes really in the realm of thinking about being the president, he goes to New York city Beecher has a church in Brooklyn. The first thing he does, go listen to Henry Warren Beecher. Okay. Like, he was a celebrity preacher. It's like was catching like, the Broadway yeah. show, right? Like you're in it, town. It, exactly. You've got to be there. Yeah. It was top of the Broadway show. But so he makes this turn towards this, this loving, open Jesus. The other thing he d- does that changes pastoral identity that he starts when he's in a church in Indianapolis is he decides he's not studying. Like he'll write his fun, funny sermons, but he hangs out at the general store. Okay. He lays, he lays at the, at the river with people and talks to them. It becomes this much more, and he, wear, he wears a straw floppy hat instead okay. of, you know, like a top hat or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So he, he, he becomes kind of one of the people. And in many ways, Rick Warren's Hawaiian shirt goes all the way back to okay. Henry Ward Beecher. To the straw hat. Yeah. It really is that. So that starts to change things and it starts to kind of release this from, it, it starts to lower the bar in some way. Um, but it's done for kind of theological, um, reasons. And, and then one of the other things that makes Henry Ward Beecher so famous is that he's, he does, after Abraham Lincoln becomes president, uh, he, he preaches many sermons and writes many articles for newspapers against slavery. So he's one of the main ones during this, right before the Civil War um, and into the Civil War, really fighting for abolition and things like that. So there's, there is, becomes this kind of sense that the pastor has a role to play in mm-hmm. larger society as well. The next step then is about a hundred years later to Harry Fosdick, who's also in New York city. And Harry Fosdick is like end, end of the 19th century, early 20th century in the 1920s, he's preaching. And the same way with Beecher is that when people came to New York city before they would go to Broadway or even go see the Yankees play in the Bronx, they would go listen to um, uh, Fosdick preach in his Presbyterian church. And then yep. in his Morning Heights, uh, Morningside Heights, uh, congregation but one of the things that Fosdick really did is have this kind of sense I mean I try it's 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 a little bit more complicated story but essentially what starts to occur here is that people realize industrialization happens more full force and people don't need to be protected from demons anymore Mm. but people do need to be protected um, from their their um, their worst angels or their worst god so the pastor now is encouraging people don't get caught up in every, in, there's urbanization is happening. So okay. pastors saying like, don't get caught up in gambling. Don't get caught up in drinking. And of course, uh, uh, Fosdick is really close to the titans of industry. Like he's close friends with the Rockefellers, mm-hmm, um, and like mm-hmm. arm and arm Rockefeller builds his church. Yep, and so he's yep. also like pushing back to these titans of industry. Very unlike we don't have in our day, basically saying to these people, it's your job to make sure human beings flourish. So the way I frame this is in this time, the pastor is still important, but the pastor now is the chaplain of the secular age. Before okay. you go back to, you go back to, um, uh, to, uh, Beckett and the pastor's everything. You go back to Edwards, the pastor's the only educated one. Now you in, enter in the early 20th century and the pastor is the conscious. The, the conscience of America, trying to remind people to do what's right. And mm. so when Fosdick, 
Fosdick, I think it's the 1940s, is on the cover of Time magazine. And then, of course, we get World War II. And then, even more so, we get a counterculture movement. We get yeah. Vietnam. And basically, the Fosdick... Like we don't have faster. a conscience, right? Like we, we, like, it's almost well, like we lose the... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, so the, the pastor is the conscience of this America and of this American project. And all of a sudden, at the end of the 1960s, you realize the American project is a lie. Mm. And the politicians are lying to you. And the mainline pastor particularly gets caught up in that same critique. Yeah. And so in many ways, as a kind of identity form, uh, Harry Fosdick is the last mainline pastor. Okay. Enter the scene. We go from New York City, industry centers in the East to California. California. And Rick Warren and evangelicalism come on the scene as this new form. And what happens is this age of authenticity occurs. And basically, organized religion as the form of spirituality is over. And now it becomes all what Taylor calls a surplus of options that he calls a Nova effect. That the critique of organized religion and just the institutional structures of organized religion become so heavy, they become like a star that explodes. And now there becomes all sorts of third options to be spiritual. You don't need to go to a so-and-so Presbyterian church or blank and blank United Methodist church. You can go hiking in the woods. Mm -hmm. You can follow a band. You could just try to get your kid into Yale. You could join a yoga group. And Rick Warren becomes an absolute genius of recognizing that the church now needs to essentially enter into that Nova effect and make a case that Jesus is the best third option of all other third options. Now, the genius is he, he does that, and he obviously has some success. Yeah. The negative side of it is, is he has to put Jesus on par with yoga, with Little League Baseball. CrossFit, with, all of it. Yeah. <laughs> CrossFit. <laughs> yeah, all of that stuff with eating kale. It, it has yeah. to be on that level. Now, to his credit, he thought, let's, I mean, he's not quite rationally thinking this, but intuitively he's thinking, let's make Jesus on the same par as yoga, but Jesus will win every time. So the objective mm-hmm. is you're looking for purpose. Let me, you're looking for purpose in all sorts of third things. Let me show you the true third thing that will fulfill. And in many ways it worked in other ways. It turned Jesus. That's that's some of the secret evangelism of the, of the Warren age, right? Like that's the, you know, like, man, there's a lot of great bands, but these Jesus songs are better. Uh, Exactly. And what, and I think what that does to kind of round out our story, because I'm sure your listeners are getting sick of listening to taking notes, summer lecture, summer's in session. Yeah. So what? So then, what of course occurs is that then the Rick Warren type pastor building a huge megachurch becomes the model of the pastor, and we really haven't broken out of that. So you go back to the guy I talked to at this uh, at this conference who said he didn't know what he's doing. Yeah. What he meant is he he didn't know inside this doubt of the loss of transcendence in the secular age how he can talk about God and particularly what it means for him to be a pastor because. He, he, it, it appears the only way to keep your people's attention enough is to create a one-stop shop for yeah. everything they need, like a big mega church. Yeah. And he hadn't done that. So he found himself either always criticizing himself, like if only I was more talented, only mm. if only I wrote a book or had a podcast, or, yeah. or if only I could become like a celebrity pastor, then I would have a good ministry. If only my church wasn't 1500, which by the way is a Huge church. Mm-hmm. If only my church wasn't fifteen hundred, but was fifteen thousand, then I would be doing well. So then they become self blame, or then it turns he blames his people. Well, if only they'd be more committed. If only they'd realize yeah. that you mm-hmm. know 
having their kid playing on eight soccer leagues and being gone every weekend wasn't wasn't a good thing to do. And if they really, really committed, then things would be going better for me. Um, so there became this kind of blame and self-blame thing that happened. And I, I just think it does become a real challenge for, for the pastor then, um, for all of us in ministry, as you can see, but um, the pastor particularly. Well, especially when that, again, and, and you're, you're, again, you're naming a lot of the things that I think uh, a lot of folks have had out there in the conversation, which is like, there seems to be this like, self-fulfilled justification of like, if the church is large, then Jesus is good. Right. Like, like, again, right. it's not, a, it's not a direct line. I mean, no, nobody I think would like rationally argue that like, you know, the larger the that church, would be no one's mission statement or something. No one's yeah. saying, yeah, the larger the church, the better the Jesus. But if Jesus is better then the church will be larger. And I think that's one of the things that like, it's almost impossible to separate the growth conversation in churches of like, Hey, our church is growing. Oh, so you're adding more people weekly. Like, and that's right. one of the things that like becomes, this, it's almost like instead of the pastor being influencer, the church that the pastor pastors becomes the influencer of like, you know, if you have, if you have 1.2 million followers and you're clearly a true advocate for Jesus, but what do you do when the average church in America is 140 people is 110 people? Like, so what is, so give us the teaser before we get to the, before the webinar stuff and to get us prepped, like. What is the theological hope or turn for uh, someone who, you know, maybe feels like the the vocation of their life has left them with, you know, kind of an empty soul or an empty church? <laughs> Either I am robbed yeah. of who I am trying to serve a master that is not the one that called me, uh, or, you know, I try to live faithfully to my calling and yet, you know, my church has shrunk and I, and I wonder if this is even viable. This is what this is what I worry about with the book, and hopefully, uh, you know, this is my, my this this is a real talk here uh, about like, as Let's the book releases it. here, yeah. right? As as it releases here in a, in a couple of weeks, or by the time you guys are listening to this, it'll probably be out. Um, is that the temptation? And I, if I've done my job well, which um, I hope I have, telling this story, what the reader really wants is what comes after Rick Warren. Like, what's yeah. the okay. next move yeah. after Rick yeah, Warren? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had a temptation to do that, but I didn't, first of all, because I didn't know if I could. And secondly, because I realized that falls into the same trap. That puts, it, puts us back in checkers instead of playing chess. Okay. And the reason we're at this crisis is because we're having a hard time witnessing, forming imaginations, and proclaiming where God is active in the world. Hmm. So I felt like I needed with the second half of the book to try to give a vision of how we can still talk about the living presence of God, even in our secular age. Mm. So what comes after Rick Warren needs to be put on the, on the, the back burner. I start the book then with two other stories and they're stories of people who are not pastors who basically have awakenings to being pastors. And the one I'll just share here, um, just for time's sake is this, I don't know if any, people saw the number one New York times bestselling memoir. Um, when, when air, when breath turns to no, air. air. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when breath turns to air. Mm -hmm. So it's about this neuroscience guy um, who basically ends up tragically with a brain brain tumor. Mm. And um, he's telling the story and then he dies before the book is done and his wife writes the last mm. chapter and it's incredibly moving. But he has this awakening because he, and he says this in the book, like once he gets his diagnosis that he has cancer, the way he interacts with his patients who have cancer is completely transformed. And he even says in the book that he realizes that he is going to become a pastoral physician, that he's going to do ministry, that he is going to pastor people 
bear their narratives, be with them in this moment, share in their humanity as they go through this. And in a very kind of theology of the cross way, he had to find himself on the cross to find the vision and the empowerment to actually go and do ministry. Yeah. So what I'm trying to sketch here, and there we just, you know, people will have to read it or we can talk about it more in the webinar, is I'm trying to sketch that the pastor, as a pastor, you feel like your identity is being thinned out, that's mm-hmm. becoming meaningless. But what's, I think what's been a pretty core central piece of my, my work that's been hidden that I'm more explicit here is that ministry itself, this ministry of actually sharing in the life of another is the place where God is present. And so what mm-hmm. I'm trying to sketch out in the second half is that God, if we want to think about God and even talk about God's own identity, we have to talk about God as a minister. That God, if you will, is a pastor, that God is a minister. Okay. And, and this really is central to the Old Testament, that, the yeah. God, that God is a shepherd, that God, um, for, you know, a shepherding people, that God, that's, this is who God is. So I actually take these Old Testament texts from Abraham to Moses, um, all the way to Ezekiel and try to show that, that this God is fundamentally a ministering God. So Robert Jensen, who's this very famous Lutheran theologian, one of the great theologians at the end of the 20th 20th century made this strong assertion that whoever God is, the only God that we from within the biblical text can know within Judeo-Christianity, the only God we can know is the God who's made known in the Exodus and the resurrection. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's other events, of course, right, but those right, become right. the two big ones. The defining ones, right, right. The defining ones are God is whoever frees Israel from Egypt and raises Jesus from the dead. Dead. So the, the, we can we can learn a lot from the Greek philosophers. We can go to Athens and learn a lot. We can you know we can go to the philosophy departments in Berlin and learn a lot or whatever. That's great. But ultimately, what it means to be a Christian, even really what it means to be a Jew, is to say the only real data we have of who this God is mm. is the one who comes to us with a word in a bush that burns but is not consumed and frees us from Egypt when we're in slavery, and the God who comes to the dead Jesus and raises him to life. That's mm. who God is. That's, that's what we know about who God is, how God acts. So what are those acts of Exodus and resurrection? They're fundamentally acts of ministry mm. that God comes and ministers to Israel, that God loves Israel and, does, and chooses out of God's freedom to be Israel's minister. Mm. Who is Jesus Christ for us? Jesus Christ is in Ezekiel, the dry bones that live again and live for the sake of ministry to, to bring us into true participation in love with God. So my big push here is that God is fundamentally a minister. So mm-hmm. how do you get, how do you create a church where that's encountering the living presence of Jesus Christ is to minister to your people and encourage your people and narrate for your people and have your people tell stories of ministry, of being a physician and deciding that you're no longer seeing your patients as problems to solve, as, um, as machines to, to heal or to rewire to work, but as persons who have stories, who need someone to be beside them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in those dynamic moments of sharing in each other's lives that we encounter the living presence uh, of God. So that's where I go with it that's is good. to try to sketch it out as um, just when we lose our pastoral identity, we have to turn and look at God's own identity is fundamentally one as pastor, as minister. Man, but isn't that, I'm going to take a little theological breath. 
But isn't that isn't that the thing that we feel like we've lost God in it? Like that's that's one of the things that that, you, that Andy that is so helpful because I think for so many of these pastors that feel like we've been rewired to be executive level entrepreneurs of startup businesses that are about to ten x. The thing missing from all of that is God. Like all of that makes sense organizationally and for better leadership and for better structure and organization. But the thing that is so tender and so thin in that is that it it seems very devoid of theology. It feels very devoid yeah. of what we have to say about who God is. And the notion that what you're calling us to is not a restoration of our vocation, but a restoration of the one who gave us vocation. It, it seems deeper and truer than any kind of like pastoral retreat that we could go on to just, you know, take a breath or a Sabbath from all the demands of serving in the church. And so that's, right. it's a powerful word. Yeah. I mean, I probably just to close it, close it out. And that thought is, is that you're exactly right. I mean, if you, if you want to form, if you want to find yourself a strong pastoral identity, you will find it. If you can build an organization and continue to prime yourself, you know, in the sense of, 10xing yourself all the time. So if you're at 2000 this year, you got to be at 3000 next year. And if you can do that, you will have a strong pastoral identity. I would look at it sideways, but you will have a strong pastoral identity. The truth yeah. of the matter is there are probably one out of a thousand, 2000 pastors who that will happen. That. Mm-hmm. And it's somewhat talent. It's somewhat just demographics. It's somewhat just luck. Yeah. And it is no way forward nor do I think is faithful to the gospel to make that, that our identity, mm-hmm. um, but it will give you meaning. I think it's much more profound to think of what is the meaning, the deep identity of being a pastor is to have that taken into wrapped around the very identity of who God is a minister that to be called into ministry is to do the most profound thing in the world. It is to participate in a in a in ways that seem backwards, that seem foolish to, to quote Corinthians, mm-hmm. but that actually are the strongest things in the universe because they participate in death, and God brings life out of death. And ministry may just be the most powerful force in the world, but it comes by taking on humility and seeking for God um, in in small places in. In, in meaningful places, um, in broken places. And so I just think that that's a better way to think of our pastoral identity is that our, that, that our identity is so significant that it's the way God identifies God's own self as a minister. That's good. All right, if you want more, check the show out links below. Uh, Andy Root's going to hang out with us live in a webinar. Ask, uh, we're going to answer all of your questions that you guys can ask. So Andy, thank you so much for dropping by for round two, talking about the newest book, uh, Pastor in a Secular Age, uh, which drops later in June 2019. Check the links below to order or pre-order it. And until we talk again, friend, thank you so much. Boom, there you go. That is our interview with Andy Root about his new book, Pastoring in the Secular Age. Again, free event for anybody that's checking out this podcast youth pastor bring your senior pastor the link is in the show notes below it's free to sign up register get us your email so that we can get you all the information and the recordings of june 12th at two o'clock of what it means to pastor in the secular age you will not want to miss this live webcast this live video chat with dr root ask your questions engage in some dialogue and find out what the new models and metaphors of youth ministry could mean upside down and I'm going to show you things you've never seen.